Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my very good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Good. Very good. We had another great week of playing games. It's true. And we're about to talk about some. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then the main review, which is NAR. Mark, what did you play this week? I got to play Fairies and Magical Creatures. This is the latest release by Glenn Drover at Forbidden Games. And I had to warn the people that I introduced it to, specifically Huey and Louie. Uh, Huey, Louie, and both of the Louis actually, have been exposed primarily to what I would call the editorial cut of the Glenn Drover catalog. Because I've played with them Age of Discovery, we played with them Mosaic, and we played Raccoon Tycoon. And they haven't seen, you know some of the other ones. And as somebody, you, who has played Galactic Rebellion, you know that Glenn Drover, although a designer of several excellent games, has also designed some games that are not excellent games. I fear Fairies and Magical Creatures might be in the latter category. Now, the art is very cool. It's, it reminds me a little bit of John Howe, but in a slightly more pastoral approach. Uh, the, the card design is by Annie Steg, and it's got these lovely little boglins and, and tiny little... I, I get a sense of, like, English countryside uh, uh, fey creatures uh, from the, the drawings, and it's all very nice. The central action selection mechanism of fairies and magical creatures is of role selection. The person whose turn it is gets to play a card either before or after choosing an, an action, and then everyone in clockwise order does that action. The problem is... There isn't really a context in which I've been able to discover leveraging that to any great advantage. Like, being able to play a card is great because they have a variety of effects and there's kind of sort of a deck-building mechanism in that you... One of the actions you can do is to get a new card into your discard pile and you reshuffle when you need to, etc., etc. And one of the actions you can do is to draw up to your hand size. So that whole idea of card flow is actually kind of cool. But the actions themselves are, generally speaking, roughly as profitable to anyone at any given time. And so I don't think the action selection has any real teeth. Consequently, everyone's benefiting more or less the same from a lot of these actions. So it doesn't have like that Carnegie disconnect where some people use up some resources and Precisely. therefore can't benefit. Precisely. You spend. can't look around the table and say, oh, no one's going to be able to really capitalize on this or this individual's at the wrong point in their supply cycle or what have you. Uh, in order to do that. Now, there are a couple of uh, corner cases, like if somebody doesn't have any cards left in their hand, you could select a play a card action. But uh, frankly, it is not the case that you're apt to play through your entire hand of five cards before somebody takes the refresh action. So mm, uh, it was all right. I mean, there's some tiling and on your own private board and you build a little garden with a path and some garden tiles next to it. There's some area majority... But again, everybody's adding to these at roughly the same pace. And so consequently, there's not a whole lot of texture to any of the actions going. It feels like uh, unsatisfying point salary, even though there's not a whole lot of different ways to score simply because, okay, well, I'll take a tile. That gives me, I get first pick of the tiles. This is a five point tile. Oh, the next person down the line, I've taken the, f they have to take a four point tile. And that was the benefit I had from selecting an action. Oh my, they must yeah. have felt really bad. I know, I know. Uh, so, uh, consequently, it just, you know, nothing particularly memorable happened. 
And I was left with an overall sense of disappointment. Now, there are some people in our local group that want to try it again. For example, uh, Huey is keen to try it again precisely by virtue of his past experiences with some of the better Glendrover designs. And I respect that. And it's awfully quick. You know, it's 40 to 45 minutes of, of, of nothing much in particular. And I know that you're curious about it. But uh, I came in with moderate expectations. Again, like cautious optimism because of my experience with past designs. And I came away disappointed. Uh, not much to recommend it. Fairies well, and well, magical creatures. You know, because it's compounded by the fact it's got very good art and by Glenn Drover. It's true. So, anyway, that is fairies. Fairies and magical creatures. Now, I know, uh, just as a minor note, after the history of Lizard Wizard and Raccoon Tycoon, now granted, Mosaic doesn't have a whole lot of rhymes available for it, but fairies, I think, the, the publishers missed an... Obviously, like you could do a whole Halloween theme and do it scary fairies. You can try to do dairy fairies and tie it into the dairy industry. It, you could get a Pokemon theme and call it Clefairy fairies. I mean, or you could have hairy fairies from the dairy that stary, are scary fairies scary. who are either into building houses and or have problems with eye contact. I mean, the options are limitless. I don't know why they didn't take these manifestly superior titles. So true. Mark, you and I got to play Dogfight, Rule the Skies in 20 Minutes. Like, I don't know how loud to shout this because it has two exclamation points. <laughs> I fear that one there's a bit of escalation, fight, yeah. And one after, well, maybe they've canceled each other out. Maybe like Is that how punctuation uh, maybe, works? Maybe, I'm not sure. Or maybe they thought they were doing it in Spanish and so they thought they needed the two exclamation points. Could have been. Could have been. So this is a review copy. Make sure I say that before I do anything else. But this one, this is about like a small line of games that uh, PSC Games has brought out. I'll merely point out that for the longest time when discussing the game with me over text, you persistently identified it as Doug Fight, and I just kept wondering who this Doug was and why we wanted to fight him so badly. Because he's me. PSC Games is a small sort of trio of war games in 20 minutes. They started with Blitzkrieg, which was uh, designed by Palomori, and then Caesar, also designed by Palomori. But this one is designed by Carlo A. Rossi. And has a few, you know, uh, like elements. You're reaching into a bag, you're pulling out the tokens, much like you're doing in in uh, Blitzkrieg. But in Dogfight, you are doing this laps and laps, and then you go around again, and then you then you, then you draw a chit mark. Yeah, you go around again, <laughs> and you're going around in this circle in attempt to get within three spaces behind your opponent. And hopefully you've played a chit that that does some damage that turn. And then therefore the your opponent takes some damage. When they take the proper amount of damage, they go explodey. <laughs> you were not looking forward to trying dogfight. Not after reading the rules, no. I thought I should stop saying dogfight. I apologize for any dugs in the audience. But I thought it was fine. It was a, a, a kind of novel version of elaborated rock, paper, scissors, because that's effectively what's going on. If someone's on your tail, as it were, you have to wonder, are they going to play uh, a small movement chit? In which case, I had better move far to get out of the range. And if, if you've got one. If you've got one, and possibly, therefore, circle around to their rear. Or are they going to play a high movement chit, in which case I should play a low one, in which case they're going to overshoot me, and then I can shoot them from behind. And they do some things to try to vary on the fundamental formula. We played a scenario where there was bombing involved, which turned out to be very mathy. Yeah, and that was very uh, much more enjoyable just, yes. than just the standard game. And some asymmetric planes with some uh, subtle 
chit variations in terms of their inventory about how much they're apt to move. In the base game, there's this idea that, you know, a, a difference between uh, red and blue, whereas where one of them has very, very high movement values and the other one has very, very low movement values. And that can sort of inform what the second guessing is might look like. And I, I have to say that all told, it was inoffensive. Uh, unfortunately, none of these designs have come even close to the genius that was Blitzkrieg World War II in 20 minutes, which was also a review copy we got from PSC Games back when it was published. But that's probably to be expected because it is a two-player distillation of Dogs of War, also by Paolo Mori, which is a very, very excellent worker placement game. And, I, you know, I, I didn't feel a whole lot of tension. I mean, there was there were bits of surprise where it's like, yay, I guessed right. Mm, you know, I got to shoot you for a while. The bombing scenario and the asymmetry are interesting variations of the formula. I'd be willing to try another scenario or two, try the other planes. Yeah, it's quite a few planes. There's like eight different planes with different, like you said, variety. And a little bit of, you know, like my plane, if I shot like the big gun, then it jammed and I had to go a whole turn without shooting. You know, interesting things like that. I don't know how good it is at modeling or evoking in any way the element of aerial combat. I don't know anything about aerial combat during pretty much any period other than Macross. Uh, but uh, there's yet to be a good dogfight game about Macross. Sets up super quick, plays super quick. So dogfight. Dogfight. Rule the skies in 20 minutes. It might be hard to find on Board Game Geek if you try to look it up, because there might be one or two games called Dogfight. <laughs> How many games called Dogfight? Uh, four. Oh. <laughs> Played a game called Ceylon. This was designed by Chris Zinsley and Suzanne Zinsley, published by Ludo Nova about five years ago. And Ceylon is actually an example of an action selection game with role with uh, with role selection and action following, where there's actually some teeth to it. The way that it works is you have a hand of three cards, you have a top action and a bottom action on the card. You get to play the card in either orientation. You do one of the actions, and then everyone else following you clockwise does the bottom action. And coming hot off the heels of fairies and magical creatures, I was very delighted to see that my choices were very much informed by a notion about what my uh, opponents would be able to capitalize on. So I'd have to find a combination of the trade-off between the action that I would like to do and finding an action that I didn't think that my opponents would be able to do too much damage with. This is used to power a relatively straightforward moving around the map, planting plants uh, to make tea, and then harvesting the tea, and then a very pleasingly ancillary recipe selection elements on the back end of after harvesting the tea. And I say pleasingly because, uh, honestly, there's far too many, re uh, you know, recipe fulfillment, order fulfillment games on the market, and I'm, I'm a little bit tired of it. And also because there was only three orders available at any given time. And given that there's three different kinds of tea, it was frequently the case that three orders would come up on the display and none of us were in any position to satisfy any of them. It was very strange. Mostly your points are going to come from area majority at the end of the game. Whoever has the most plantations, the most, most planted fields will get the most points. And, you know, there's, some other, there's of course a track. You have to have a track to, to go up. Uh, overall, I found it relatively pleasing. It was, it was a fine uh, light to middleweight Euro game. I would have probably preferred it had it jettisoned the order fulfillment entirely. And the action selection was surprisingly pleasing, despite the fact that the fundamental engine was was relatively simple. And I wonder why there are uh, so many games about tea. 
At any rate, as I say, I like the action selection, but in Ceylon there were, you know, some of the stuff didn't feel as, as, as tightly coordinated as everything else. I'd be willing to play again. It was all right. It was, it was a perfectly fine experience. And that's Ceylon by Chris Zinsley and Suzanne Zinsley, published by Ludonova. A Kickstarter copy of Almost Innocent came in. This is designed by Felipe Atali and published by Colossal Games. And you and I got to play it. It's sort of a mixture of, so those who have played Incognito or Clue, it is that sort of game. But what it does is takes away takes away all the fiddly movement, awful mechanisms of those two games. Unfortunately, it adds in the mechanism of not passing cards. And instead, you give verbal uh, confirmation of clues. And therefore, if someone makes a mistake, the game will break. So it's hard. Break hard. And... Uh, so what you're doing, you have like a, a victim, a place, and a weapon, much like Clue. And there's a grid in front of everyone. And then you're asking questions. How, how, many, uh, how many of my clues are in this column or row? Or is my actual victim in this row? And so forth. And it's a cooperative game. We're all trying to figure out our cards because everyone everyone's player to the left has their set of cards. And so you sort of ask them the question and then they tell you. So there's a little weird sort of who's, who am I asking and who's telling my information? Sometimes it was like a little a confusion. There it was a confusion. A couple, Sometimes it was a lot of confusion. Pretty much every round. It, it's one of those simple things that led to profound confusion. Pretty much every round, somebody made the mistake of forgetting, okay, who's got the answer for me and who am I asking what now? It's because so many games go in clockwise order. Yes. More on that in, in a future game coming up. And uh, so, yes, it was it, it's my, my jam. I really enjoy Incognito. This game, the artwork is fantastic. It's uh, by the same artist as Hidden Leaders, namely Satoshi Matsuura. So it looks fantastic. It has a whole sort of built-in campaign system, or you can just pick whatever mission you want to do. It's got a scenario book. It has a scenario book. Let us not let us not slur it and sully it with with calling it a campaign. It, it's a scenario book. Scenario book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, your thoughts on almost innocent? Uh, I did not enjoy it. I got solid prepping for the LSAT vibes. Um, I never got a sense about what was a good question to ask. And I was just mostly wrestling with two things. The strange round structure of looking to my right, then play passing to the left. And I, I, was, I wasn't the only one. Everyone at the table was having this confusion, but I was definitely knee-deep in the confusion. Uh, yeah, you, you made the same mistake, Walker. Don't pretend this wasn't a... <laughs> I was correcting the mistakes. It says, no, you're supposed to be asking him. No, she has your answers. You no. made the same mistake that we all did at least twice over the course of the game. Don't pretend you were better than that. <laughs> How dare you, sir? And I, uh, consequently, I was never really, I wasn't paying attention to information that other people were gleaming. I'm sure there's room for some truly sophisticated deduction and questions and so forth. Maybe you're not obliged to do that in the first scenario. Maybe it's only in later scenarios where that's a necessity. But mostly I felt lost. I, I for, for much of the game, I didn't know what I was doing and why, and not in a pleasant way. I felt that I was struggling more with internalizing the logic of both the flow of the game and the solution rather than actually playing it. And consequently, I, I did not enjoy the experience much. Now, that having been said, uh, deduction games aren't really my jam. So keep that in mind. 
I'm pretty sure the only people that had problems with the turn structure were the people whose names started with M. And that so is... So that's 75% of the table. No, and that, as you that, said... That was 100% of the table. Um, oh, you're right. Your name's not Walker. <laughs> that's the alias we gave you so the so, so the feds wouldn't find you. That's right. Yeah, no. It, and also, uh, as you say, there was, there was... Given that it's really hard... To internalize the round order, that makes it so that you're grappling with things and you get distracted. And so I was not at all surprised that our game broke. We're 99% sure that you were given a false clue. And consequently, the the game was, I mean, we don't really care so much, especially about cooperative games, even competitive games, about bringing the game to a proper conclusion, finding the actual winner, whatever. But as it is, you know, the game had to be scrapped. It was... We got to the end, but we weren't certain if we had played correctly or internalized everything. Correct. I'm glad you enjoyed it, though. You you and everyone else at the table really seemed to dig it. Agreed. That is almost innocent. On the topic of ga- taking games too seriously, uh, sat down and tried the new Barrage map, the Nile Affair expansion. This is by Tomasa Batista and Simone Luciani, the, they being the designers of Barrage and published by Cranio Creations, still the people who publish all the Barrage stuff. So here's the thing about the Nile map. It introduces a new sub-mechanism called irrigation, whereby if you build dams in certain locations, you can use water from those dams to purchase certain kinds of tiles. These tiles do two things. Number one, they give you one-shots. And number two, at the end of every round, there is an area majority scoring for whoever is the wettest. The moistest player gets a point bonus. But it uses the water. No. Oh. They get a little drier as a consequence of winning. A little bit. Well, the irrigation uses the water, but it doesn't use the water by virtue of them be, being being hailed as the wettest of, of players. And then the driest of players suffers a penalty. That part was great. It was another axis of competition. So we have to worry about generating power. There's the point benefits for that, of course, and of, of satisfying contracts. But additionally, there's this additional pressure of using your scarce water for irrigation purposes. That part was fine. Uh, the part that I really didn't like, though, was the effect that the tiles themselves, as bonuses, had on the fundamental game of Barrage. And indeed, when we were setting up the game, there was a bit of discussion between uh, two groups of people, the anti-League Water people and the pro-League Water people. The League Water expansion is the was the first major expansion to Barrage, and despite the fact that the game was designed with everything all in and the League Water expansion was hived off purely for commercial reasons, it was the strong preference of two of the people there, namely Dr. Handsome and myself, that to play without the League Water expansion because it renders the game more tight, more focused, and it means that both building spots and worker spots are more hotly contested. And that is the kind of game that we would like. Fewer rules, more interaction, right? There are some other people who seemed... This is uncharitable, but I think it's actually accurate to seem to believe that if you could have more things, why wouldn't you have more things? And that is a perspective that I used to have in the infancy of my hobbyist days, but I I got cured of that pretty darn quick. So there was a bit of discussion about whether or not we were doing the League Water expansion. The uh, player who was pro-League Water uh, seemed to regard us as infant babies who couldn't wrap our heads around an an extra rule set or something. Uh, That was uh, thoroughly disabused when uh, Dr. Hansen proceeded to clean his clock. But anyway, setting that aside... (laughs) Uh, the other, so in, what in the game, <laughs> no, I'm in the parking lot afterwards. Oh, just, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there are two things that these tiles do. Number one, you can cash them in for one time special bonuses. Sometimes it's simple, like generate a few points of power. Don't use this to satisfy a contract, but sometimes it's something like generate power as in like convert. 
like a whole a whole generate power action or build a thing or what have you. And this introduced into Barrage combo-tastic combos. And I don't think that the game was better as a consequence. Again, it introduced a kind of the feel that the League Water expansion and the other Euros tend to have. Namely, if things got looser, there were more ways to get to where you wanted to go that did not involve engaging with the other players or the core mechanisms of Barrage. If you're of the opinion that more is more, always more, then yeah, it'll be fine. Play play the League Water expansion with the Nile. Now you have a billion different ways to do the fundamental actions of the game, and you'll probably like it a great deal. The other effect that the combo-tastic nature did was that sometimes turns just kind of sprawled, again, in a way that they don't tend to do in Barrage. So, all told, I thought that the Nile Affair, although it was really nice in terms of the competition for being the moistest of players, and for additional competition for building spots that would allow you to irrigate, that part was great. I really didn't like the effect the tiles had on, on the game overall. And so, it I don't think it's as bad as the Leak Water expansion in terms of introducing these effects, but it's definitely a vibe that I prefer not to have for Barrage. Consequently... I have uh, unpledged for the Barrage expansions on Kickstarter. I, It is now the case that everything that they have brought to Barrage, other than just additional XOs, which you can just mix and match with the base game, every effect that they have introduced has not been to my preference and has diluted, no pun intended, the fundamental experience of Barrage and why I like it. And so, consequently, I don't think that the the game as a game line is expanding in a way that caters to my preferences. However, put, put my mouse cards. I'm I'm sorry about your mouse cards, Walker. I'm not going to pay twenty euros shipping for your mouse cards. <laughs> it's just the nature of the beast. Uh, crowdfunding is an expensive affair, and I'm in all likelihood I've got tons of barrage stuff. And as I say, the base game is still the way that I want to play. So that's Barrage, the Nile Affair expansion. I would play the Nile again. After all, it was my first exposure to it. And I'd even play the Nile with League Water. And indeed, sometimes when I play with certain tryhards, they insist on it. But it is not my preference. And still my favorite Barrage is just base Barrage. And there are many tryhards in the world that would assert that that is because I'm a simple-minded peon that just cannot understand things. Uh, I don't think, however, that that is the proper explanation. So, that was our experience with Barrage. We got Jenga Maker back to the table. This is designed by Hasbro, published by Hasbro, illustrated by Hasbro. (laughs) Uncredited seems very talented. I looked up their their resume. Uncredited has done a lot of impressive stuff. They got a long list. Uncredited, Anonymous, and Alan Smithy. Very, very talented artists. So... You are flipping up these cards that will have a picture that is illustrated by all of these sort of shapes, wooden shapes that are lying on the on the table. So two teams each have a card, and one is the team captain, let's say, and they can sort of verbally tell the other person how to draw this thing, or sorry, build this thing that they are not allowed to look at. Only you can. You can't do hand gestures you can only use your voice, so it's a lot of spin, turn, rotate, arc over <laughs> with a semi-twist, and you're trying to <laughs> grab the pink one. No, not that No, no, no. Anyway, <laughs> so this is the awesomeness that is Jenga Maker, much like Ugtech and the or these other silly sort of building games, but I love it. It was it's very inoffensive. Our our shapes weren't 
so spectacular this time, but there was still some, some of them were very weak. Some of them were good. Just so. So Jenga Maker, still a hit. I love Jenga Maker so much. It is very player count inflexible. It's pretty much just for four or maybe six players if you're willing to have two builders at a time. But it's... Yeah, I wonder, like, is it six? Like, two build two people are trying to build the same thing at the same time? Yeah, one person is shouting, and then two people are, are Ooh, using that, their greasy little that, hands. That could be interesting. <laughs> it could be some definite chaos, absolutely. Massive, massive fan of Jenga Maker. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually, and I said this in passing uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, but I'm, I'm very much of the opinion now that it encapsulates a lot of my theory as to how games ideally should be played, certainly for my preferences, and I might even, upon further consideration, want to generalize it as a sort of axiom that I think more gamers should internalize, and that is that light games should be treated seriously and heavy games should be treated lightly, because... Light games where you refuse to engage with the rules at all. It's like, oh, it doesn't matter. Nothing really matters. Eh, I think you're insulting the, the the thing. And light games can provide tremendous enjoyment. And they exist, given that there's less structure, you have to take what structure there is seriously. Heavy games, on the other hand, mentioning no barrage sessions that I've had in particular, can either be a breezy 90 to 120 minute experience with some good people and some good mechanisms or a three to four hour slog fest. Hypothetically. 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 So Jenga Maker was great. Additionally, I got to play Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Scrawlers, Heroes of Waterdeep. And Dungeon Scrawlers is exactly my preferred brand of stupid. And honestly, this was the most success I've had introducing anyone to Dungeon Scrawlers. It was great. We were competing hardcore for the coins because there's more player interaction in Heroes of Waterdeep because there's a scarce quantity of coins and there's an area majority contest for whoever has the most coins. People were really digging the mini dungeons. But again, I want to stress... Heroes of Waterdeep is a considerable step up in terms of both complexity and length from Heroes of Undermountain, which is not to say that it's particularly complicated, <laughs> right? But it's the difference between, say, a 90-second scrawl and maybe like a three-and-a-half-minute scrawl. That's what I'm talking about in terms of an individual map. And yes, scoring can be a little bit more complicated as a result, uh, but so long as people are reasonably numerate, and not everyone is in the mood to be numerate at all times. I fully acknowledge that. But so long as everyone is reasonably numerate, scoring shouldn't be a problem. And this time, I was very gratified because every time I introduce, I'm like, are people going to have difficulty getting... Nope, no problems whatsoever. And I had a massively, massively good time with Dungeon Scrawlers, as I always do. This was one of those occasions where I thought I had packed it because in a, in a you know longer game day situation as we had over the weekend... It is great for people of all ages. It is great for people of all different kinds of hobbyist backgrounds. And it is great given that it, you can play just one scrawl at a time, in which case the game will only take about five minutes. I was very chagrined when I arrived at the venue and discovered that I had not brought it. But when I saw that somebody else had brought a copy, ugh, it warmed the cockles of my gaming heart. So Dungeons & Dragons, Dungeon Scrawlers, Heroes of Waterdeep, I mean this sincerely, it has among my highest possible recommendation of games published in the past few years. This is designed by Evangelis Bagiartakis and Konstantinos Karagianis, published by WizKids. I am hoping that there's going to be lots more scrawling going forward because just the range of... Of, of effects that they've had between the base set and now this additional set. I'm very curious to see where they're going to take the, 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 the system on top of the fact that I'm just happy to do the real-time competitive connect the dots. I do have to start thinking about investing in a good set of dry erase markers, though. <laughs> 
the new theme for every episode. It's true. It's an issue. The discussion of the dry erase marker. It's a non-trivial thing. It's true. I got to play a game called Three Ring Circus. This is designed by Fabio Lupiano and Romero Corzonadoni. This is another Deviate game, so it's going to be awesome. Because they only produce awesome games. Is that how it works? Yes. Red Cathedral, Toku, uh multiple others that well i noticed that this was a, a relatively small box uh not as small as the red cathedral but definitely smaller than Botoku. yeah and it's got that same feel it's got that same mid midweight euro that's got some teeth so what you're doing is you are putting on shows in northeastern united states so there's all these little towns medium towns and large towns and then you have the super professional circus <laughs> they they are they are they're represented by this train car that does a counterclockwise like this is what I was talking about before it does a counterclockwise loop of the whole board so it's this like spaghetti like you know road system that's going across the whole board and so you're traveling around and on your turn you simply do one of two actions you're either adding someone to your circus or you're putting on a show and the three different types of cities give you different things so you know the small the small towns will get you more money, so therefore you can buy uh, better uh, act, better performers, performers. performers for your circus, which you will get when you perform in a medium town, which you need pedestals for, which you know you get pedestals, you know, pedestals like you know sort of like the the uh, the ringmaster would you know you'd stand on oh pedestal, sure you know like you know, like a little pedestal okay. type thing. You sort of have a pedestal value. They, you know, they're on cards or on your boards. It has this very interesting sort of eyeball icon, and it's throughout a bunch of things. And so, how far you can move is based on how many of the train things are visible on your board. And then you have to make choices of you know when and how to cover them up, and that will reduce your movement. So interesting things like that. And then the big towns is all about how you have built your board because you have a personal board where you put all the actors and performers. And depending on how you laid them out, you're going to get more points. The big cities need a particular type of performer or else you just cannot perform there. And then the, the, the weird scoring that people were having trouble with is that there is like sort of a ringleader card that starts with the last player. And then when the giant circus, every time the, the giant circus gets to a major city, there's, it triggers scoring. So the person that has that ringmaster token will flip it over. And now the giant circus won't move again until the end of that player's turn. So if it's their turn, like the giant circus moves, sorry, the giant circus moves every time someone chooses performing as opposed to adding a performer. And so if it happens on that, on that player's turn, then it'll score right away. If it doesn't, the big circus doesn't move until it comes back to that player and they finish their turn and then it's scoring. So it's this area majority because the map is broken up into different sections. And every time you put on a show, you put a little big top tent. So the board looks fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Lots of different ways to score. Uh, even as you're building your board, not only are you building it to, uh, do better performances. There's also end game scoring combos that you can sort of set up on your board. There are end game scoring cards that you're going to get when you fill up complete columns. Looking forward to showing it to you. 
I'm surprised to hear your praise of it, only because I'm curious about Three Ring Circus, not so much because of the publisher, although they've had a pretty good track record, and not so much because of the theme, which does not interest me at all, uh, but because it's co-designed by Fabio Lopiano, who has designed Kalamala, Ragusa, and co-designed Autobahn. Uh, and we're big fans of both Kalamala and Autobahn. And all of his designs so far have been characterized by a sort of cute action selection mechanism whereby there are compounding benefits based on how you've set up your your actions. A little bit less so in Autobahn, but it still had a clever action selection mechanism. It sounds like this is the first game uh, that that we've played where it's just entirely straightforward. You, you do one of two things and go and do it. Yeah, it's very quick. Once you figure out how... Because oh, like adding a performer is simply putting it on your board paying the cards next player's turn. Putting on performance, once you figure out how the three different cities work, then it is almost just as quick. Hmm. And that's not a criticism. I, I don't insist that a game have to have an interesting yes. action selection mechanism. I, I'm just curious because I find it interesting that this might be uh, somewhat of a departure from his traditional design aesthetic. Then again, it is a co-design. So is Audubon with Nestoria Mangioni, but anyway. So it's just, it's just very interesting because you can sort of, you can see where the giant circus is going and where they're going to score next. And so you can try to set up tents there, or you can like, you know, get ready for the, the next one, or you could be doing your whole other. I just like the different ways you can play it. We'll see. Looking forward to trying it. That is Three Ring Circus by Devier Games. So Walker, let me tell you about this game that was introduced to me by a listener. I feel like the past six years of my life have been a bit of a waste have been basically ill-spent. You had a vision of what a life of board games was. It's and true. And then it was shattered. It's just true. This last... Shattered is a good word for it. Let me tell you about this. Real time, dice rolling, dexterity, and shouting. Is this called the game of Mark? It's the game for Mark. Now, what kind of hyperborean mega designer with BDE, big design energy, could design such a thing? Well, it is Antoine Boza, of course. So the fact that it was designed by Antoine Boza makes me even more upset that I've missed it thus far. I present to you, Walker, Paku Paku, a game a game about an overeager panda. Here's how it works. Oh my goodness, Paku Paku. Now, I, I knew that I had to go get a copy. Uh, there were a, a very small number of available at, on uh, online... Canadian board game outlets. I was made sure to reserve my copy before talking about it. I don't think we can move a whole lot of copies, but we might be able to move enough so that I don't get any, and that would be bad. So, the way that it works is you roll your dice as fast as possible. There are a certain number of dice, and they're just going around the table at an uneven rate because you pass dice off to the left every time you get one of the results. There are a whole bunch of blanks, effectively, during this period, but one of the results says you have to stack something into the middle. Stack what? These beautiful, tiny, twee, little plastic dishes, bowls, and cups. And so you have to stop, and while you're doing this, dice may be accumulating in front of you. Which is bad, because there are two ways the round can end, and you do not want to be the one to end the round. One of them is if you have four dice in front of you, which can either happen as a result of just sheer bad luck, whatever, or because there's a logjam because you're spending too long trying to stack these things. In which case, someone has to point at you and shout, Paku, stop. Or, Paku, 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 stop, 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 case depending. I mean, sometimes you get a little too enthusiastic, it's fine. Or, naturally, you cause the, the, the stack of dishes to collapse. At which point, you roll all the dice in front of you, They the things that were previously blanks have numbers on them, they give you penalty points, game continues. 
Paku effing Paku Walker. Sounds amazing. I was completely unprepared to Paku Paku. And now I cannot wait to Paku Paku again. Oh my goodness. I cannot stress how much fun real-time dice rolling is for me. If you've never played a real-time dice rolling game, give it a try. It may be your jam. I'm not a huge fan of dice per se. Like, there's some people who just adore the physicality of dice and and rolling. I'm not that person. But real-time dice rolling is a kind of a joy. It's like a dexterity game unto itself. And these little plastic cups, plates, and bowls are delightful, and they are impossible to stack super well. And it's just, you have this time pressure of stacking as quickly as you can. And so everyone you can around on. you is rolling free. And, yeah. And, and your dice are yeah. starting to stack up. Yeah. And, oh, it's, it's great. It sounds amazing. Paku Paku by Antoine Boza, published by Ravensburger in 2017. Thank you, dear listener. Thank you. Thank you, dear listener, for introducing me to Paku Paku. Paku, mother effing Paku, Walker. Smart. So Onto a game that we didn't enjoy so much. Mm. This is a game called Emerge. This is designed by Adam DeYoung and put out by Pandasaurus Games, which is kind of sad because we've enjoyed lots of games by Pandasaurus Games. I was getting from the visuals and the meeples strong uh, Gods Love Dinosaurs flashbacks Yes, by Casper Lapp. I regret having uh, given... Gods of Dinosaurs to uh, a patron. I guess that's that's the bomb. That's the bomb to my soul that it went to a patron's house. But so uh, what you what I read the rules to merge before I decided to bring it home, and it sounded interesting because what you're doing is you're rolling a bunch of dice and you're assigning them to your own personal board in order to. You say assign it. It you're sorting them. Sorting it's purely them, true. predetermined. True. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, and you you sort them into these actions, and then you in turn order perform the actions that you happen to fill. the The hook that I thought would be interesting is that every turn you can add tiles to your board. So now ones and twos will do the action that you really want to do that round, and then you add some more tiles. Now one, two. We'll do this action, and three, four, we'll do this other action. And you can add tiles at the beginning of every turn, or you can totally resort the tiles. And the tiles are the same actions that you already have on your board, but they have a special ability, which you can also flip over and trigger every turn. In fairness, that part, managing your board to try to adapt to the changing circumstances, was kind of neat, because what you're doing with your actions is very straightforward, but they need to happen in certain stages. So... Very simply, you want to add a crab to your island because every every meeple on an island is worth points. You want to add a crab. Well, you can't add a seal until you've added a crab. Okay, so you put the crab out. You put the seal out. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I skip one? It's crab, then turtle. Crab, then turtle, then seal, right? Correct. So at the start of the game, you're like, seals? I don't need any seals. Forget that. Crabs are where it's at or whatever. And so you cover up the seal action. And then so- suddenly around, you know, around four or five rolls around, and you're like, crabs? What? When did I ever need crabs? And so that part I thought was neat. Managing the the, the flow of your, your dynamic scoring necessities, uh, that part was enjoyable. But then there's just the tedium of going through the actions. And, and the way the game is designed, I can see why you need to, because there's a lot of timing considerations with goal cards and scoring opportunities, where I think this game would completely shine if people just did all of their actions at once. <laughs> And and you just the whole game was just managing your board. It's like I plays the dice. Right. Okay, now everyone just lump on the the pieces you got. Now go again, and the game would take half as long. And there might have been something there, but instead, 
there are these gold cards that you'll pick up every time you start an island or you can buy them and they do stuff. And there's also cards that you have to get as, you know, gold cards, first X. Yes. First X. So, (sighs) and there's not a, what player interaction there is, is pretty arbitrary and accidental. Like for example, the gold cards that we had, one of them was have a perfect Island, which is to say all the animals, all the trees, uh, but at a certain point in the game, the only way in Emerge to have a bird on your island is to steal it from somebody else. And so, you know, you've got the dice to give you a bird, and you have those dice because you rolled them randomly, and there's not much you can do about that. And so you're like, okay, who do I steal a bird from? It's like, oh, all right. Oh, well, that costs somebody five points. And I, I don't know if all gold cards will result in those shenanigans, but I have to say that the ratio of managing my board to try to adapt to my needs for the coming round as compared to the volume of randomness introduced by how the dice happened to, sh- to shake out, I felt it was far too heavily weighted towards the latter as opposed to the former. I did not feel like it was in control. I did not feel like I was playing with other players. I felt like I was just managing my own flow of dice. And I would have preferred more doubling down on this, you know, customizing your board element, possibly with more reroll opportunities. If you're going to have that much, like, learn from Paku Paku. If you're going to have... No, I mean this entirely seriously. If you're going to have dice drive your game, whether it's going to be driving the action selection mechanism in the case of Emerge or driving resources in the case of Catan or what have you, let there be more abilities to roll the dice, to modify the dice, to influence the dice. In Paku Paku, yeah, it's a lot of dice driven. You don't like the results of your roll? Well, you're going to be rolling again in half a second. In Emerge, on the other hand, you get this, you know, five dice, you chuck them all, it's like, oh, well, I need three dice to put out a turtle. I've got two. I need two dice to put out a crab. I've got one. All right. (laughs) And even with the re-roll abilities, there's not a whole lot of ability to, to manipulate it. I didn't seem to find it as painful as you did. You seemed to be like, engaging in, in, in histrionics of apology for having subjected the table to the tragedy that was Emerge. I assure you, I've had worse tragedies in my life than playing Emerge. It was, it, it was largely forgettable and unfortunate with a glimmer of promise yes. in the action manipulation. Well, I think that's what, what was the most disappointing, is that it, Fair enough. it felt there was going to be something there, and then it quickly disappeared. It didn't quite emerge. <laughs> um, How long the, have you been working on I that one? I was just sitting here just listening to building you, waiting, up to it, waiting, and just, oh my goodness. To, to throw that out there. And that was Emerge by Pandasaurus Games. Got to play another game of Albedo. Albedo is this absurdly niche, ridiculously bizarre, simultaneous blind bidding slash deck building game that is relentlessly short in all the best ways. So just as an example, the default faction starts with a nine card deck and you have a six card hand. Anything you buy in round one, you might draw in round two. There you go. <laughs> Simple as that. Or if you don't draw it in round two, you're going to draw it in round three. That's just an example of, of how focused it is. Albedo is all about contingencies. Well, I what I want to do ideally is I want to conquer this planet and pocket it for points. But can I craft a bid that will get me something useful even if I lose that bid? Or is it worth enough to me that I'm willing to go all in? Maybe I don't want to go to, uh, to to both planets this round. Maybe I'm in a position where I can take second place in both planets and profit from that. Or maybe I can take first if I'm really... Anyway, these are the kind of considerations that you engage in Albedo. It was self-published by Kai Herberts and Herberts Entertainment UG. Uh, and it was uh, there was actually some development work done on it, a, a small amount. 
by my friend uh, Woogie. But nonetheless, uh, Albedo is just, I, I, it, it is one of my preferred fillers, to be frank, because it doesn't feel like a filler, and it has a lot of the same benefits that a lot of other fully-fledged 90-minute to 75-minute uh, deck builders have, and it really does blind bidding right. Blind bidding is a, is a fraught endeavor, and it can lead to lots of hurt feelings and lots of swinging results, but I think that Albedo really manages to do a great job. We played with the core faction and with the space pirates. The space pirates have a bigger deck with lots of trash, but two amazingly powerful cards, but they don't start with that really, really, really tight nine card deck. They start with a 12 card deck, which means anything they buy, they're not going to see in round two. So it's a little bit trickier. There's also the plants called Yggdrasil and they're very weird, but nonetheless, uh, you have some options when playing a game of Albedo. I highly recommend it. If you can track down a copy, I've been playing a lot of a game called Sky Team, not on Board Game Arena. This is designed by Luke Ramond and put out by Le Scorpion Masque. Your, uh, your your sarcasm, I think, may be a little bit too dry for the listeners to pick up on it. A little, a little too much. <laughs> well, then they can send me a damn check. Um, and uh, he, he means Board Game Arena, not, not you, the listeners. <laughs> All right, so Sky Team is a cooperative two-player game. Why do I feel like I'm the Walker Whisperer now? <laughs> <laughs> and it just has this feeling that I enjoy. It's like a old uh, tablet app that I always loved where you had a top-down view of an airport and these planes would fly in and with your finger you would trace sort of like the path that planes would take to land. But planes kept coming in and you, and you can't, couldn't let them collide with each other. So you're making all these crazy spaghetti-like groups. But anyway, I digress. Sky Team, you are you are discussing what you need to do. Then you roll your four dice, and then you're not allowed to talk anymore at all. You have a pilot, and you have a co-pilot, and you have seven turns to keep the plane level, to drop the landing gear, to ready the brakes, to uh, decrease your speed to a certain amount to make sure you deke out all the other planes because there's a bunch of other planes that are flying around. Imagine. And at the end of the seventh turn, you have to be at the right level with the brakes on and the flaps up and any, any of these things not right, you lose. And so it's all this hoping that the other player has the right dice, sort of putting the dice out in the order that you think makes sense. Like it's like, okay, well, I'll put this at four out here because there's two spots that must be filled each time. One is the engines. One is the, the tilt of the plane. And as soon as the other player puts the dice in, you immediately see the effect. So very interesting game. I pre-ordered it a while ago and will not be canceling that because it has been a great ride so far. And that is sky team. I have been very, very keen to try Sky Team ever since Charlie Teal raved about it after this year's Gen Con. I am very, very keen to give it a shot. I just oh. don't know if it's going to be completely random, right? Because you're just rolling dice. There is an action you can take that gives you a coffee token that lets you modify a die up or down. Like anyone's allowed to use it once you generate the token. But just the not talking and just sort of hoping, I guess there's just that little bit of tension, you know, art. And then, you know, damage control on the next turn. But I just don't know if it's going to be completely random. I guess there's a whole bunch of different airports and they're going to, and each airport gets harder and harder. I haven't looked at any of them yet, but apparently there was like mountains you have to go around and stuff. So even though in the first mission. Yeah, I hear you can't go through them. No, 
bad, 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 bad piloting. Yes. In the game, in the first mission we're playing now, you just try to keep the, the plane level. But I, apparently, in the in the future missions, you actually have to like, oh wow, steer left and right, and then get it level so you can land. Anyway, very much enjoying it. Haven't won a game yet, but soon I'm sure. It doesn't sound at all similar to this mobile game called Space Team. Have you ever played Space Team? I have not. A wonderful, wonderful co-op mobile game. I highly recommend it. It also involves shouting. I'm a big fan of shouting. There's no no shouting in Sky Team. I know. Maybe after. No, I meant I, I've talked maybe, about other games. Maybe after you play the la, la, the last die, there might, <laughs> there, might, there might be some shouting. Just some some brief shouting followed six, by followed, six in engines. Really? Followed by silence. <laughs> followed by silence. That's the sound of acceptance, Walker. <laughs> That's the sound of forgiveness. Indeed. Played Battle Card Series 1. So this is up on Kickstarter right now. This is a print-and-play series of micro-solo war games designed by Nils Johansson and David Thompson. David Thompson, of course, being the designer of all those great solo war games. (laughs) So this is being put up by Postmark Games, and one of the things that really attracted me to this project, and one of the reasons why I backed it, is because in the universe of print-and-play... There's things like what Postmark Games is doing now, where literally what you do... Let me let me explain to you the manufacturing process. Lay, lay it down for me. Okay. You have a PDF, all right? You print it out. Gotcha. I'm there. And then you play the game. No, you lost me on that last step. Okay, sorry. I realize it's confusing. Okay. I mean, similarly, Button Shy Games, you print out a couple sheets of paper, and you cut out nine cards from each sheet. And that I'm willing to do on occasion. But honestly, uh, by... <laughs> By the standards set by Postmark Games, that seems like hard labor in comparison. Anyway, there are planned to be five total scenarios in Battle Card Series 1, and I got to play two of them, specifically the Malayan Campaign and Morrow River. Both are review copies sent to us by the designer. So I started with Malayan Campaign, and I played it a a number of times. Uh, I was left pretty unsatisfied by the Malayan Campaign because it feels like a solvable puzzle where part of the solution is don't roll one. It's a delaying engagement, whereas the British Commonwealth forces, you're basically retreating from Malaysia as the Japanese are pursuing during World War II. And I don't know anything about the Pacific Theater of Operations, so I don't really have any historical background in that part of the, the, the Second World War. Not that I know a whole heck of a lot about any period of history, necessarily. And, I, you know, I tried it a bunch of different ways, and it, and, and it really did seem like there was one way to do it, and even then, if you rolled a one, it could mess up. And so I didn't, I didn't feel like there was a lot of trade-offs or considerations or issues of long-term planning. I, I was left pretty unsatisfied with it. But I pressed on into the Morrow River campaign because it appears to be a fascinating alternate version of World War II, a, a sort of a, a alternate history version. Because in this one, it claims, and I know this can't be true because I've been playing lots of World War II war games over the course of my hobby's career, it claims that Canadians were involved in World War II, which it can't be true. I don't even think That's impossible. Be. I have played many Many historical war games designed mostly by Americans. And I can tell you that there were precisely two antagonist belligerents involved in World War II, the Americans and the Germans, and that is it. I don't think America let Canada exist till after World War II anyway. <laughs> yeah, we only got their permission in 1952. Exactly. It was a whole thing. Anyway, Morrow River is, uh, by comparison... Using very, very similar mechanisms, but vastly more interesting than the Malayan campaign. And I'm very, very glad that I went on to Morrow River. Now, keep in mind, the time commitment involved, uh, each session is going to last you about five to ten minutes. And despite that incredibly tight 
time frame, I felt that there were genuine trade-offs in the Murrow River scenario. When to pursue, when to hold back, when to reinforce, how to reinforce, where to distribute for, uh, where to distribute your forces. Because you're under considerable time pressure, and you have to pursue Germans as they're retreating. But, uh, I mean, that, again, science fiction. Uh, the Germans certainly would never have to retreat in, in the face of Canadians. That that never happened. Never. Except for Rommel's veterans. Anyway, um, so the, the Morrow River is vastly more engaging than the Millennium Campaign. I had a much, much better time with it. And on the strength of that, I am very, very happy to support the campaign and see what they're going to do with the remainder of the scenario. So it's on crowdfunding now, on Kickstarter. It's called Battle Card Series 1. It's going to be up for a few more days. And like many great crowdfunding campaigns, they will have product to give you very, very quickly, namely the first few scenarios. Not all of them will be available right away, but this is not a wait a year and pay vast amounts of money. This is give them five bucks and get something soon, which I really adore in terms of crowdfunding. So that's Battle Card Series 1. And finally for us... I got to play the third edition of a game I've been playing ever since it was published, and that is Wabash Cannonball, designed by John Bohr. The third edition is by Rio Grande Games. The first edition was published by by John Bohr, Winsome Games, and then it was republished in a massively oversized, unnecessary box by Queen Games called Chicago Express. And I have to say that Wabash Cannonball, in its third edition in Rio Grande Games, is, to my mind, the best edition, because... You, we can quibble about the aesthetics. I actually like my train games to be, uh, my uh, tra- cube rails games to be kind of ugly. And I like them to have little cubes, hence cube rails. But it has a mounted board, unlike the original Winsome Games Edition, but it is in a, it is in a small box, as in, well, no larger than it needs to be. It's still technically a medium-sized box, I guess. It's not a small box the way, say, a Paku Paku or an Albedo is. Just pick two mainstream small box games. Look, I've got Paku on the brain, okay? How long am I going to have to hear about this? Forever. Paku is life, Walker. Paku and Jenga Maker and Dungeon Scrawlers, that's all I'm ever going to play ever again. No problems here. Okay. So, (laughs) I really like this new edition, despite its, its, well, hideousness. It's got a very strong, ugly aesthetic. What did you, this was your first introduction to to Cube Rails, I think. What did you think of Wabash Cannonball? I enjoyed it very much. At the very beginning, I was a little put off by, I wouldn't say it wasn't explained, but I just thought, you know, shares were a little more... I got tricked, Mark. Oh. <laughs> no, I didn't get tricked. I, 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 I specifically said... I might have paid a lot more for my first share than I should have. Well, no, it wasn't the first share that you overpaid for. It was the second share you overpaid for. Because one of the things about Cube Rails games in general, but Wabash Cannonball in particular, is that if you don't have any cash on hand, you are vulnerable to predators who will capitalize the railroads you already have and that share that you paid sixteen bucks for five seconds ago, someone else is going to buy it for five. <laughs> and then, and then now the fifteen dollars it's worth will be now divided by two. Yes. So my poor red share lost a great, great deal of value right off the beginning. It's true. It put me a little bit behind at the start. But you rallied that, very impressively. It's true. Blue brought me back. Blue all the way, and it, it is like you said. You said right from the beginning that this is a cutthroat, backstabbing game, and it is very much so. You sort of want to keep people out of certain railroads, or else you're never going to get them to go where you want them to, because you can only build rails if you have a share of that company. And the goal is, well, I guess you could say the goal is to get to Chicago because it would be worth a lot of points. Well, it depends. I mean, the circumstances under which a railroad can get to Chicago 
depend a lot on the psychology and the motivations of the people there. So by the end of the game, the situation was Huey had a controlling interest in green and I had a very, very small minority share. You had a very, very strong position in blue and I had a very, very small minority share. Meanwhile, yellow was equally owned between Huey and myself. And so I didn't have a majority interest in anything. And the only reason why I was able to stay competitive was because I was a cheapskate and didn't really pay for anything and kept making other people pay to double down on the investments they already had. It's true. We could have we could have done something in that game if we kept you out of one of those railroads. Quite possibly, yes. And if, if we teamed up and, and made sure that happened, then we could have got that railroad to Chicago and therefore put you behind the eight ball a little bit and maybe made up some of that score. Yeah, I that don't, being said, we I don't know that very you, close. I don't know that you ever... Oh, yeah, yeah, it was a very close game. You two were rolling in income because you, Huey was able to make something of green and you were able to make something of blue, despite my meddling efforts. I basically just torpedoed them so they couldn't get to Chicago because I had the minority interest. It was not in my interest for it to, to, to dole out massive additional quantities of money. And you do that... Because, I mean, you can do that because there are only a certain number of cubes. And therefore, if you use up the cubes non... Optimally. Optimally. Just by developing into random forests for no reason. There will be not enough cubes for you to get to Chicago. Yes. I really like Wabash Cannonball. I still don't have a good sense or a set of, of hard and fast heuristics about what anything is worth. I still operate mostly on gut feel which is one of the reasons why I'm not very good at it. Uh, but I do really appreciate how the sort of shared incentives across players and the opportunities for collusion or parasitism emerge as the game develops. It is probably my favorite Cube Rails game, and I think there's a reason why it keeps getting reprinted in different editions. It's because it's exceptionally well done, and if you want to see how vicious starting an auction can feel... Wabash Cannonball is the game for you. Just be warned, it has paper money. Yeah, so be be warned, actually. I saw a thread on BoardGameGeek. Someone was very, very disappointed because when you click on Wabash Cannonball on BoardGameGeek, what you're going to see is a whole bunch of pictures of Chicago Express with its colorful board and its little wooden trains and all that. I think it had wooden money anyway, but... Uh, sorry, paper money anyway. But then they got, they, they got Wabash Cannonball. And now, to be fair, the Wabash Cannonball put out by... Rio Grande is very inexpensive, as befitting its uh, the, the the components therein. But uh, caveat emptor, just know what edition you're getting. The Rio Grande edition is uh, charmingly hideous, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Walker suggested replacing the cubes with plastic trains from the Little Plastic Train Company, which is currently gearing up for another round of crowdfunding for some very impressive new Little Plastic Trains. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. So that was Wabash Cannonball, designed by John Bohr, finally published under his actual name. For a while, he insisted that it was designed by somebody else. It was a whole thing. John Bohr is a bit of a character. And published by Rio Grande Games this year. Those are the games we played this week. Now we will pause briefly to pay some bills. And we're back. And on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So Mark, I got a pledge in. This is Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor. I go on and on about this game. It is a troops on the map cooperative sort of puzzly game where you're trying to manipulate the enemies on the board to have fights where you want them. But long story short, 
lots of new stuff, which I'll be putting out an unboxing video for today. So if you can't come to that, check out our live channel on YouTube to check that out. And that being said, we're going to be live streaming it this Saturday, this upcoming Saturday. So if you're interested at all in Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor, come and check it out. There's going to be a second edition of Food Chain Magnate by Lucky Duck Games. This is going to be a game found exclusive uh, all in one with the expansion edition. New art for the tiles. Yay. New art for the cards. Boo. And plastic stuff for restaurants. Wait and see. Uh, I, for one, anticipate a sticker price of uh, more than anyone can reasonably afford. And uh, I, for one, I just, once again, for the record, I would just like to assert people who complain about the card art for Food Chain Magnate, I don't know what they're talking about. I love the card art for the, the first printing of Food Chain Magnate by Splatterspiel. I think the new cards, I, I'm cautiously optimistic about the new card art. It still seems to, to want to evoke the time period, which is which is nice. But part of me likes the sort of simplicity of the line. Anyway, uh, the, the tiles, though, I will grant you, could there, there's some room to zhuzh up the tiles, personally. Uh, I just have no idea how much this is going to cost. This is this this could be many monies, Walker. It is going to crowdfunding, so there'll be 15 different prices you can choose from. I don't know. I th they say it's just going to be like one edition with with the expansion built in and a one and done, no intention to bring it to retail, no intention to print anymore. So who knows? So I enjoy Yokohama and the the publisher in Japan is still putting out copies of Yokohama, but because Tasty Mitchell Games is no more, it is not available here in North America unless you import it. But Synapsis Games, apparently, to the rescue, there's going to be a new second edition of Yokohama. And the interesting part is that they're going to sell the deluxe components separately. So if you already own a copy of Yokohama without deluxe components, I don't see why you wouldn't be able to buy this set of deluxe components and use them in your old copy of in that Yokohama. Case, in that case, do you really own Yokohama at all? <laughs> yes. Oh, all right. The difference in this new edition is that it will have double-layered boards. <laughs> Metal coins, no doubt. Probably. In the, in the deluxe uh, <laughs> yeah. box, yes. Yeah. Uh, but eat, like not just your player board to like uh, slot in all of your player pieces, but even like the goal cards and some of the other areas all have double-layered boards. Oh. The art's changed up. The, the box looks very colorful, and it's a standard ticket-to-ride square. So. Ah, I see. There you go. So for those who don't have Yokohama, a new edition on the horizon. Publishers, heads up. Andreas Stedding is shopping around his redevelopment of Hansa Teutonica with a gangster theme. He claims he has tweaked some of the mechanisms as well. We're big fans, big, big fans of Hansa Teutonica, and we're also fans of some of the other designs published by Andreas, Andreas Stedding. So come on, someone snap that up. Well, we've they announced that. Years ago, yeah, he, he's he's once again on the prowl. This is there's a renewed effort for him to try to sign the gangsterized version of Hansa Teutonica. The theme itself, you know, never really appealed to me. I mean, gangsters are German medieval merchants, you know, six of one have it as the other, as far as interest is concerned. I fear, though, it's just going to end up the same route as many a Euro gangster themed game is, and it's just once again going to be anthropomorphic gangster animals. We will see, <laughs> we'll see. Lastly, for me, Riverhorse Games, they haven't put out the most fantastic of games, but 
there's going to be a Ghost in the Shell tabletop game coming out from River Horse in 2024. So we can hope that it is cool. You a big fan of Ghost in the Shell? I'm a big fan of Ghost in the Shell. The original uh, Shirao manga or just the movie? All, All of it. All of it. Okay, well, there you go. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game, which is NAR. NAR was designed by Thomas Dupont, who is a French designer. He has put out a number of designs, Codex Naturalis, uh, a series of games called Carta Ventura, as well as Rush Out. I don't have any experience with his uh, past designs, to be frank, uh, other than Rush Out, which was okay. As far as real-time dice rolling games go, it was no Paku Paku. Good lord. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in NAR? Well, NAR, by the way, for those of you who are curious, is spelled K-N-A-R-R if you're trying to look for it. And unable to find N-A-R-R, it is K-N-A-R-R. The K is silent. So in NAR, you're bar- bobbing up and down a little bit because you're in a ship. <laughs> and it is it's a little shorter than a warship. It is, it is used to haul cargo. It might have a hull. Thank you, Wikipedia. I mean, it might have a deck. It might not have a deck. Okay. That is what a NAR is. <laughs> All right. <laughs> On your turn, you're going to decide if you're going to do a trade action. This will run one part of your engine that you've built. You can do this before or after your main action. For that, you have two options, explore or recruit. Explore adds a part to the engine that we just spoke about. Recruit adds and runs the second action, the second engine that you can build. So you, most of the time, I think the majority of your actions are going to be recruit. You play a card. It gets added to all the cards that you've played thus far of that color that are in front of you. And each of them then triggers again. Turn one, you play a card that gives you a point. Turn two, you play a card of the same suit that gives you a recruit. So you get a recruit and a point. You play another card of that suit. You get a recruit, a point, and whatever the third card is, etc. And so, obviously, there's this compound benefit of focusing on a given suit. There are two things, however, that fight you. And this is where NAR immediately starts introducing these trade-offs that characterize what I think a short, intense game ought to have. One of them is you don't have a great deal of control over what card you draw. Ideally, after you play a red card, you'd probably much of the time want to draw another red card. Well, maybe you can do that, maybe you can't, because the color of card you play determines what kind of card you get to draw for free. You have to pay to draw something else. The other problem is you don't have a lot of time. (laughs) You can sit in your corner and play out your seventh yellow card and marvel at all the things you're getting for that seventh yellow card you put out. But the game's going to end next turn and you haven't done anything with it. (laughs) But maybe that seventh yellow card, maybe it's all points. So you're getting like one, then two, then three, then four, then five, then seven, and then eight points every time you play a yellow card. There aren't enough cards of that denomination that give points for that to be plausible. Because the way you get those other those other points, those other cards that add to the engine that Walker spoke about, and some of them you buy to add to your engine. Those are the cheap ones. And then there are the ones who primarily you buy because they just give you a whack of points, usually somewhere between four and eight. The way you purchase those cards is by burning Vikings from your tableau. Dismantling the, the other engine, yes. Precisely. Deconstructing that thing that gives you these compound benefits. And... 
Deciding and knowing when to do that is the key tension of NAR because you want everything. You don't have a whole lot of time to do it, and it's going to be over before you know it. People, It is one of those great filler games where there's enough meat to it that people overestimate how long the game is going to take. It is a sprint to 40 points. And so there are people who think, ah, this is, uh, there is infrastructure to be had. Therefore, I should clearly build it. Well, sometimes you've got time to do that. Often, you don't. Yeah, because a lot of very good Euro games have this interesting uh, decision of while you're building your engine and then when to convert that engine and to just like start to pump out points over and over again. In NAR, it's much different than that. It's like sort of this back and forth. It's an it's ebb like, and flow. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, well, I can, I can toast those cards, make this part better, and then get back to building my tableau back up again. Yeah. Great. And it, it's worth emphasizing that the card art uh, for NAR is really quite compelling. I'm a, huge fan of the way they've depicted the the various Vikings of the various types. Uh, I think the color matching is very, very well done. Additionally, uh, the art, by the way, is done by uh, Carillon Antoine. And apparently, uh, Bombix has licensed use of this set of colorblind-friendly iconography that that is nominally to be used for other games as well. It's called Color ADD. Yeah, I'd be interested to see if it takes off some sort of standardized version. That, that would be interesting. I, I don't know if it's a particularly good iconography for colorblind people. I don't have any uh, background in that particular accessibility market. But the fact that somebody is grappling seriously with some sort of standardization is interesting, if nothing else. So it's got a lot of other interesting... I've talked about the... The trading, like one of the other things you can get while you're playing these cards are silver bracelets, which were used as like a currency in, in Viking times. So what you can do, this is what you pay because as you're buying these big cards, they're lining up at the top of your board into three columns. And then when you do the trade, you spend one, two or three silver bracelets to run those lines. And that can give you anywhere from victory points to all sorts of, you know, different things. Yeah, and the, the overall scope for resources in NAR, I think, is balanced just about right. Effectively, you have these silver bracelets. You've got recruits, which can be used as wild cards when buying those big victory point cards. And having a stack of recruits gives you tremendous flexibility in terms of paying for things. But the most crucial resource you have is time. Because, again, you want to play that fourth red card because of all the bennies. But by the same token, the only reason why red cards are super valuable anyway is for use to buying those other cards. But buying those other cards isn't as fun. But it's how you win. And <laughs> on top of that, you have these hard resource caps. You can't carry more than three bracelets or three recruits at a time. And that as well informs some trade-offs. Like, well, do I want to do a suboptimal trade now? Or do I want to wait for later when I can do a big, massive trade? And you can only do one a turn. So yeah. I, I had one game that, that actually mattered. It's like, okay, well, I'll do, you know, I'll do a single bracelet trade now. And then it will get me two. And then at the beginning of my next turn. Anyway. And then there's one thing we haven't talked about at all is reputation, which is another thing that sometimes can be very beneficial or it can lead you to going up a trail that, you know, that wastes your time. <laughs> well, it all depends on timing, like everything else. Reputation is a track. It's the only track that exists in, in, in NAR. And if you reach certain thresholds, you will earn income at the top of every turn in terms of points. Now, uh, my chief criticism of the reputation system is that it is bordering on fiddly for a game of this speed. 
uh, having to, re- and it's frequently forgotten, having to remember to get one or two points. By the time you get to three or five, oh, you'll remember at the top of each of your turns. But a number of times we're like, did I get my points at the top of the turn? I can't remember. But it's, it's a lot about timing. How fast can you get to those thresholds in the reputation track? If you can hit that reputation track early, you're going to get lots of dividends. If you, if you think the game's about to end, or at least you're, if you're not aware that the game's about to end, you think you've got tons of time and you just get some reputation points for nothing, it can be a waste. But that's true of almost anything you can do with NAR. If you do the wrong thing at the wrong time, it is not going to be profitable. So it very much fits with the rest of the overall economy in that sense. So not only are the cards very colorful and great art, but the whole production is fantastic. Uh, it comes with these deck sleeves that fit into the box nicely, and so it makes setup that much faster. And no plastic wrap anywhere on the inside of the game. Correct. You are just pulling out these two decks, you just make the two displays, deal out some cards, and you're ready to go. I was kind of upset though, Mark. I, I looked at their online uh, rule book, and it had silk screening on all the pieces like the victory point oh. tokens and the, the rep tokens. And then I looked at the actual printed rule book and they weren't there yet. So oh. that idea was apparently scrapped. I'm sorry, Walk. I know. <laughs> it would have made it look so much more pretty. And it also comes with at what I thought at first was useless and silly. It came came with a little token for every player and you simply like mix them up and, and draw one for the first player. And I said, well, what was the point of that? But like you quickly pointed out, it has a very interesting sort of end game uh, trigger. Uh, it's much like sort of 51st State. As soon as someone hits 40 points, that triggers the end of the game. And uh, then you do equal turns. And then whoever has the most points wins. And these tokens will remind you who the first player was. And I'm finding it, the more I play NAR, which I'm always happy to do, I'm finding it more and more important to pace myself appropriately. The past couple of games that I've played where I've lost, often very badly, have been games where I ended a turn with 39 points, which indicates that I bought a card at the wrong time, I bought when I should have played, or I played when I should have bought. I should have had a better sense, even when I was sitting around 20, 25 points or or whatnot, how am I going to get over the line? Because if you end at 39, that's a bad place to be, (laughs) especially if you're the start player. You're probably not getting another turn. Yeah, and all our games have been very close, which I like. There's not really, you know, it's well, it's really too short to have a runaway player, but... Yes. My chief complaint, actually, uh, based on how tight the scoring tends to be, is that I, I, I'm finding a non-trivial number of games to be determined by what high-value point cards hit the table near the end. Because a high-value point card might cost something like three green and two red cards. Well... If you happen to have been building into red and green and that just hits the table, well, then that's great. But if you've been building into red and green and near the end of the game, like when you're rounding that corner, when you're getting past 25 into the low 30s, but all of the cards need yellow and purple and blue, well, you're done for. There's, I mean, there's very little you can do about that. Yeah, it's a little bit of the ticket to ride syndrome, right? Yeah. You know, it happens to come up. I forgot to mention that in in uh, Three Ring Circus where there, you're, you get three endgame scoring cards and you draw them throughout the game, and it was exactly that. I, you know, ah, Indianap- yep. Indianapolis was the first uh, uh, big city to score, and I had gone heavy in there. And near the end of the game, I flipped a card and have have the most tents in M- Indianapolis. <laughs> uh. and I was like, oh, great, ten points for doing nothing. Yeah. So yes. This can also lead to unfortunate player interaction. There's not a whole lot of player interaction to be had. It's just who buys the cards first. 
you know, two players happen to be building towards the same color of tableau. Now, maybe you should have looked at what they were building towards, maybe, and built towards a different color. Eh. Do you like? Do you really build towards a color, or do you just like happen to use the cards that you? you well, that's the get? thing. I like. It is conceivable that that is a subtle nudge that you should consider going towards a color that other people aren't. But yes. we've seen a number of games strictly determined by someone just nabbing the card before somebody else could. And it wasn't done as a deliberate block. It was just like, well, these are the cards I got. This is the card I can buy. There we go. Now, if NAR were a 45, 60, 75-minute game, that'd be a bigger problem. It's 20 to 30 minutes. And as it is, the quality of trade-offs involved, even if and even when the winner is entirely decided by what's available in the, the, the final three-card offer, uh, I, I find it hard to object too strongly, <laughs> to be frank. I think this is this is a game, though, that argues strongly in favor of one of my friend Woogie's theses, which is, generally speaking, if there's a card display of things to purchase, just add a couple more cards. Ain't going to hurt hurt the game balance, and it's going to give give people a little bit of a, of a fairer chance. But... All told, NAR is probably my favorite filler of the past five years. It's a remarkable return to form to like the really, really interesting small box Euro filler that is not a roll and write, that is not a one-trick pony based on a single uh, element. The trade-offs are delicious. The tempo is marvelous. The art is very pleasing. It's accessible. It's approachable. I love it. Comes in a little tiny box. I'll play NAR anytime. Glad we have a couple of copies. Absolutely. Yeah. Just as an indication about how much we love it, it is available on Board Game Arena in a very good implementation. So give it a try if you want to give it a try for free. We almost never now buy games when we know the other one of us already has it. We went into this fully knowing. I bought my copy of NAR knowing that Walker was already buying a copy, and I regret it not at all. That is NAR. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Way Wrong About Games. That's going to do it for this week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us. We thank you very, very much for having decided to spend time with us, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Please take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicken. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.